You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. This is Doug and Greg Stokes with Lanyap Podcast, and we've got a special guest, Jamie Catherwood with O'Shaughnessy Asset Management on today. Jamie is a very prolific writer on all things market history and, and not just recent market history. He writes about various events going back hundreds and hundreds of years and relates them to what's happening today. The discussion today is going to be on the history of bubbles and really what causes market bubbles and speculative periods. We were talking before the podcast hit record and just drawing parallels to this COVID period related to government spending, debt levels, et cetera. And Jamie, maybe we just start there. When you look at what's occurred, it's almost two years now since the COVID lockdowns began. When you're thinking about where we go from here, what's the first thing that pops in your mind as a parallel to the COVID period? So just in general, one of the things that I found fascinating about the last, I guess, few weeks and maybe few months is that these kind of pandemic darling stocks that were supposed to the huge winners from COVID because lockdowns and everything were going to permanently change how we live life are finally starting to drop, like Peloton being the prime example. And I just feel like it's interesting because it seems so inevitable that that would happen, but still when sales are not at these like just record high levels quarter after quarter, people are freaking out and then selling the stock and these shares are plummeting. But it just seems to me like a good example of human nature because I mean, obviously like home exercise bike like Peloton during a time when nobody can go to gym is gonna sell a lot of units. I mean, that's just like, (laughs) why wouldn't they? People can't go to the gym, but then I feel like as the stock price goes up and sales are good, people start convincing themselves that, well, people will never go back to gyms because COVID's changed everything. And so Peloton's just going to keep like selling this many units forever and there'll never be a dip. And then as soon as gyms start reopening, people go back to the gyms and Peloton sales fall. And then everyone's like, oh my gosh, we never saw this coming. And then the stock craters. And I think that kind of just boom bust within a short period of time is really interesting and kind of shows how human nature it's just really bad at forecasting, even when things seem so like obvious logically. <laughs> I just noticed that the NASDAQ 100 removes Peloton. It was in there for like a year, which I feel like is the most, uh, is like the best microcosm of that stock's experience. But I think in general, in terms of how COVID relates to past kind of events from financial history, we were talking before we started recording about the parallels to kind of expensive wars um, in the 19th and 18th century. And basically every bubble or most bubbles in those two centuries arose following an expensive war with European powers, usually Great Britain, um, where they would be fighting another European power and they'd have to raise a lot of money to finance that war. And then once the war ended, they still had all this debt and they did not want to kind of make these expensive interest payments each year and pay the service on that debt. And so they would come up with ways to lower the debt and reduce those payments. And that's actually how like the South Sea bubble occurred. The whole government debt for equity swap was because the government was trying to convince people to sacrifice or exchange their government debt for equity in this kind of government related company because the South Sea company had overlap with the government and kind of being a private enterprise. 
And what the governments would largely do is lower interest rates after the wars so that it was cheaper for them um, to pay off the debt and they would force bondholders to kind of just accept reduced interest rates. And today, I feel like there's a similar parallel between how much money is being pumped into the system from the Fed, et cetera, and that like these 19th and 18th century bubbles has led to some really interesting speculative bubbles and crazy things like JPEGs of rocks and EVs that have no cars and all the likes of that. So I think that's an interesting parallel. Obviously, every time is a bit different, but overall, I think that kind of theme of the government pumping a lot of money into the system in the time of low interest rates is always going to produce speculative bubbles. And then inevitably kind of reality sets in. And in this case, it's been the threat of the Fed raising rates, which again, seems inevitable. I mean, they can only be at near zero for so long. And then the slightest increase, everyone kind of freaks out like they never saw this coming. But it's just obvious that eventually we're not going to stay at zero forever. We like to think that we're a lot more sophisticated nowadays than our forefathers. But what does history tell us about the retail investor of present compared to the one, let's say, in the 1800s? So I think that today there's obviously much more information um, that the average retail investor has, but that doesn't necessarily equate to being a more informed and rational investor. An interesting parallel that I've looked into is when the bucket shops and the ticker started kind of expanding throughout the country in the 19th century, when they had more tickers in each state, like in this kind of expanded outside of New York, the people using that ticker, like the average trader at the local brokerage firm or bucket shop, instead of trading kind of a broader range of names, because now they had more information provided by the ticker that was connected to the New York Stock Exchange, Theoretically, they had all these stocks to choose from because they had all this information, but they tended to just herd into the same like 20 names that were in the local papers. And that I feel like today at the beginning of the pandemic, there is a similar phenomenon with that Robinhood tracker app. I don't know if you guys remember that. It got shut down, but it was showing like the most popular Robinhood stocks that were being traded. And so much of the trades were being put into those top names and nothing really outside of that. And that just really doesn't make sense if you think about it because we have more information than ever. We have so much data, yet people don't think, so I'll go find kind of more undiscovered names. It's, I'm still gonna go into the largest names in like the Russell 1000, et cetera, and just kind of all go into the same stocks and chase the momentum, et cetera. And so I think we have more information today, but the kind of behavioral side is very similar to what the average retail investor is doing in previous centuries, which is just kind of herding into the same stocks that are popular with other investors. I think there's really two pieces in there, and we can go down both of these paths. But one, you were talking about Peloton earlier, and, and basically any stay-at-home stock, obviously there's going to be, if you just think about it rationally, there's going to be a pull forward of demand if you have to stay at home. So anything that is related to work from home, stay-at-home, gyms closed, restaurants closed, et cetera, stocks that benefit from that um, would likely have slower growth rates in a period when lockdowns or people start coming out of their houses, et cetera. And Peloton will be the classic example of that. But you mentioned something related to the conviction of people related to that particular stock on the way up. And the same conviction 
related to the stock, negative conviction related to the stock on the way down. And I want to dive into what you had written about, which was basically that price conviction paradox and, and maybe explain that first. And then we'll take the path of bubbles after that. Yeah. So one of my friends, Jim Chanos, uh, he teaches a financial history course at Yale on the history of fraud. And there's probably no better person to teach it than him. And he teaches about this concept of the Kindleberger Minsky cycle, which kind of just states that the fraud cycle lags the market cycle. And what that means is just that, like I kind of explained with the price conviction paradox, which I'll go into in a second, when the market is going up, people are willing to suspend their sense of disbelief and kind of buy into the kind of fantasy visions of founders and, you know, kind of salesy CEOs, to put it politely, because they're making money. So why would you question your return in a stock if you're just like putting the lights out? But when the market goes down and you're starting to lose money, then people start to be a lot more kind of skeptical of what they own in their portfolio, because then it's a negative thing. You know, why is this company losing my money? What are they doing wrong? And then you look into, oh, well, actually, this kind of business model doesn't make sense. Or this, these financials are worrying, like their outlook doesn't look that great. But it's only after you start losing money that you start to look into those details. And so what I wrote about this kind of price conviction paradox is that there's a, ironically, a lower conviction that speculators, investors really need in order to buy a stock. So when the stock is going up, you don't really need a lot of conviction to buy it because your reason for purchasing it a lot of the time is just the fact that it's going up, which is not the correct approach, obviously, but it just happens to, it tends to be the way that people um, trade. And then when the stock is going down, then it requires a lot more conviction to buy it because it's harder to buy something that's going down than something that's going up because the sentiment is completely inverted. And so even though we all know intuitively buy low, sell high, we kind of tend to do the opposite. And it's just interesting that your kind of reason for buying and your conviction in a purchase decision tends to be just correlated with how the stock price is moving. Another thing that Chainus has said that I liked is he's talked about how for CEOs of companies that turn out to be fraud, the stock price kind of acts as a double-edged sword. It's the best kind of prosecutor and the best defendant. When the stock price is going up, the CEOs are kind of untouchable because stock price is their evidence that things are going great. But then when it starts to crater, then all the problems that were being hidden by a good stock price are kind of brought to light and they can't fall back on, well, I'm making you tons of money. So what's the problem? I think that if you look at Kathy Wood's ARC fund, for example, that particular fund is basically comprised of like innovation-oriented companies. And as a lot of people know, that particular fund was one of the hot funds of the pandemic era, took off completely, and then subsequently over the last year has really fallen off and is down. I don't even know yeah. what percentage is down, but it's down probably 50 or 60% from its highs. But to your point about retail investors definitely questioning things more often on the way down, I read an article recently in the Wall Street Journal there's one investor, I'm just going to quote this from the Wall Street Journal. This is about four days ago. This individual, Klaus Derendorf, a 50-year-old business development executive from Los Angeles, said he sold his ARC Innovation Fund shares in November and has boosted his cash holdings after losing about 20% in the fund in less than a year. And I quote, I got to get back to real fundamentals, he said. 
Yeah. <laughs> and I think there is another guy in that article that also like moved to cash after his investment was down like 10%. <laughs> it's like, again, it's just like, where's the conviction? Those kind of examples highlight the fact that clearly you were only getting into this fund because you did no real research and you're just like, oh, going up. <laughs> that's all I need to know. Innovation and a rising like ETF price, that's all I need. And then when things go down, it's well, you know, I didn't sign up for this. Right. I got to get out of this. Yeah. <laughs> I think the same thing, like with Peloton too, as soon as the stock price started cratering, the CEO came out and announced that 40% of the staff is going to be laid off. And basically that it uncovered that the stock itself had no real, or the company itself had no real staying power, but it was just riding its price wave in the stock market. And then as soon as that started to crater, you could see things that were wrong with the company. They started having to lay off people, et cetera. So that double-edged sword that you talk about, Peloton's a pretty good example of that. Definitely. Not to just keep quoting him, but I think these are all good kind of ways to think about it is in terms of fraud specifically during bubbles, Chainist uses the phrase that short sellers are the real-time detectives and regulators tend to be kind of archaeologists because they do everything after the fact where investors who are looking for fraud and seeking it out are the ones that are trying to uncover things in real time as they happen. And so people hate short sellers, but they're the ones that are kind of trying to point out fraud in real time. So they definitely serve an important function in, in markets. Chanus has been famous in the last decade for several decades, but in the last decade for good and bad reasons. And the biggest piece is his short or the most famous one is his short on Tesla. But I want to talk about one thing he's been saying over the years related to this particular period post-financial crisis in which he called this era, the golden age of fraud. Can you dive into what the meaning of that is and why this particular era is so specific to fraudulent activity, especially if we're in an age where information is so easily attainable? How are fraudsters perpetrating those acts? in this particular age compared to what seems like it would be easier when information was more scarce. Yeah, you would you would think that, but one of the things that tends to happen is there's a an article, I think in the 19th century, about kind of frauds being uncovered during bubbles. And the line was something like the speculator who is achieving good returns is no more likely to believe that their company is a fraud than a like thirsty soldier will believe that the water like he's found is poisonous. Like you're going to believe what you want to believe if that's what you're looking for and you can't convince somebody otherwise. And so I think even though you have more information today, we still don't have kind of the wherewithal to put aside our, our belief and desire to want a stock to do well and kind of ignore all the information that points otherwise. And so I don't want to speak for him, but I think that one of the things he's talked a lot about over the years is just how a lot of these kind of startups in Silicon Valley, et cetera, that have clearly bad business models are just thriving and doing well in the public markets. And that there is kind of a different combination of there's like pockets of fraud in different sectors and kind of areas of the markets. And so you have the stuff going on in China like earlier this year, or I guess geez, two years ago now, COVID time, <laughs> like Luck and Coffee. I know he was in that and that was the fraud he's been talking about for years in China. And then you have Wirecard and I'm trying to think of the other examples, but there's just 
kind of all these different pockets of fraud that are going on and have been able to persist. And again, that's a good example, actually, of how I think each of those frauds that I just mentioned came to light in like March or April of 2020, which obviously was when the markets crashed. And then it was in line with that kind of cycle we were talking about a few minutes ago about all those frauds coming to light after the markets crashed and people started to kind of look into things further. So I don't know why specifically he talks about the golden age of fraud, but I know that that's one of the reasons that he's talked about before is that there's all these kind of fake it until you make it people in Silicon Valley and that's kind of just accepted. But then some of these companies, which if you were looking from the beginning, you could have seen the signs that the fake it until you make it was a lot more fake and they were never going to make it. But it just, for some reason, has taken longer for people to realize that because there's so much hype and excitement about startups changing the world and going to change everything. But I don't know. I think investors have been more willing to suspend their sense of disbelief and for a longer period because we've been in or were in this just longest bull market on record. And so you just kind of get accustomed to this idea that markets don't go down and everything will go up and every new disruptive business is going to succeed. I read a couple of your articles specifically about past historical investment cycles, for example, in the railroad era, and then secondarily in that particular era was the mid 1800s, and then secondarily in Britain with brewers of beer. Can you go into the specifics around those specific eras and the enthusiasm around the investment cycle that took place for each of those? And then secondarily, do you see sort of any analogy and in, 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 in sort of how history is kind of playing out in a similar fashion in today's day and age? So I think that the both of those are good examples. The brewery bubble is one of my favorites. So niche, it's not a lot of the coverage on that one. But starting with the railway mania, I think it was Jack Kenneth Galbraith, the economic historian that said nothing is kind of more fascinating than the ability of investors in the 19th century to forget the previous railway mania and like go ahead strong into the next one. That's a massive paraphrase, but it is ridiculous just how many boom and bust cycles related to railroads there were. I mean, I feel like essentially every panic after the 1840s was driven by the collapse of a major bank that had speculative investments in railroads or the collapse of a major railroad firm that then spooked the market and caused panic. But it's just fascinating that just time and time again, this one sector just crashed markets. I think that one of the interesting things with the railway mania, and specifically in the United States, is the role the government played in fueling it. I've written about before that one of the reasons that the bubble became kind of so widespread and so large is because the government made the initiative to fund the construction essentially of nationwide railway network, specifically in the most famous one, obviously was the transcontinental railroad. But what the government would do to kind of encourage private investment and kind of entrepreneurial enterprise is they would say if for every mile of track that you lay, we'll give you, I don't remember what it was, but I think it was like $16,000 or something. And then X amount of acres of federal land grants, which then you can use to sell immediately. And so it's just further kind of subsidizing their railway investment. And so this encouraged people to build 
railway tracks and kind of form railroad companies to take advantage of this government incentive program because they knew they would be paid for the miles of track that they laid. Obviously, that led to a lot of waste because people were just building track to get the government money. But I feel like that is an interesting period because it showed a good combination between public and private sector to achieve something that benefited society as a whole because there was rampant speculation in railways. As I mentioned, they were the driver of almost every crash from the 1840s on. But within that, we still were left with a nationwide railway network that kind of changed the trajectory of the American economy forever. And I don't know what that would be today, but I do think that it's an interesting example of how the government can kind of decide what their goal is on a national level. Like we need a national railway network. How can we incentivize the private sector to invest and kind of take on this initiative? And I think that's very interesting case study. I think that maybe something could be done today with kind of, I don't know if it's electric vehicles, but I think that if we're going to address climate change, et cetera, that that would be an area which the government could potentially offer more incentives and encourage investment from the private sector. And I think one of the things that the electric vehicle manias of last year and the year before showed is that investors care more about returns than ESG. And it doesn't, they, they aren't really picky on where they can get their massive returns from. And so if that goes into something that benefits the climate, then maybe the government can see that example and consider coming up with some sort of incentive program like the railway subsidies that will encourage a lot more kind of innovation in that space because people weren't buying EV SPACs because they were ESG. They were buying them because they thought they could make a ton of money quickly. And that to me is just like the kind of railway mania of the 19th century is it went towards the same goal, building a railway network. But, you know, the average speculator wasn't buying it because they thought this is good for the national economy. And like, this will be good for our infrastructure network. They were buying railway stocks because they thought I can make a lot of money on this quickly with no work. I think you see that in the in terms of booms and busts. There have been several mini booms and busts in this post-COVID market. And the EV stocks are one of those. And I think that obviously that becomes more mainstream than it could have bigger ramifications. But yeah, a government-aligned incentive program with the public and private sector doesn't seem like, whether it's EVs or just general moving to green energy from fossil fuels and subsidizing those particular programs, offering tax incentives to investors in those particular programs. Uh, seems aligned with railroad mania, although it doesn't seem like it's on the, the same level of scale that it was yeah. back in the 19th century. I want to get you to comment on the brewery bubble, but maybe just in general, it seems like there's a constant, at least reliving of, you know, basically the whole concept of history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, right? So what we're seeing today from an investor's perspective, maybe we think about this on a go forward basis. We're in an age where information is so easily attainable, yet people still make the same mistakes that made in the past. As you're looking forward investment-wise, what is the one thing that's a constant in the investment world that maybe when we say that markets are efficient 
are mostly efficient. Why would that be particularly wrong from a historical perspective? And, and what would make that wrong going forward? Well, I mean, I think a lot of the examples we've talked about so far show that markets are not entirely efficient because if they were, we wouldn't have ridiculous bubbles like the ones we've talked about so far. And they're not even the most ridiculous. We can go into it later, but another like transportation mania in the 1890s that coincided with the brewery bubble was a bicycle mania where like 671 bicycle companies went public in two and a half years. <laughs> and so... I mean, I think that's just a clear example of markets not being efficient. And that was just in Britain, which is not a big country. <laughs> and uh, so, like, I mean, there's just no need for 671 bicycle companies. And so I think history is just full of examples showing that markets are not efficient. Going forward with COVID and everything today, I think that, I don't know, there's been so many fits and starts with a value kind of comeback during COVID that has been short-lived. But I do think that eventually people are going to have to start looking for investment ideas outside of just mega cap tech and just buy QQQ and buy every dip is that just can't work forever. And so I think maybe that the kind of last month or so, um, or definitely just year to date in 2022, it's been a good reminder that you should probably look at other areas of the market, including value stocks that while they've underperformed for a while, you know, you still want to diversify your portfolio across the kind of style box, for lack of a better term. And so I think going forward that investors are just going to have to start kind of looking more outside of mega cap tech, because while that's done well for so long, eventually, like you can't just always, you can't continue this performance inevitably, like just indefinitely. It seems like it's always when you have a major speculative period and in what would be technology, the always the the conviction on the or maybe lack of conviction on the upside is is related to well this is new economy we're invested in innovation everything that we're investing in that's going up in value now is what the world is moving towards and I think that in terms of how that has has performed from a price perspective throughout history there's always been innovation and it doesn't necessarily mean that the innovative companies are always going to be the best performers. I think if you look at what Greg mentioned, ARC earlier, the name of that ETF is ARC Innovation ETF, and it's down 50 or 60% from its highs. So I think the, the moral of that particular story is that there's constant boom and bust cycles. There's constant speculative investment in innovation. And generally speaking, these things mean revert. Yeah. My favorite uh, headline I saw from ARC was, I think, I can't remember if it was an article or she just tweeted it, but Kathy Wood tweeted that innovation stocks are now in deep value territory. She's like, isn't that convenient? <laughs> like, just the new, it's interesting to see such a clearly like momentum and growth investor suddenly try to like leverage deep value <laughs> kind of reasoning as uh, <laughs> She's very good at branding. So whatever yeah. <laughs> deep value is now hot and it hasn't been for yeah, exactly. 10 years. <laughs> yeah, I haven't heard so much about cryptocurrency lately either. Yeah, that's a, uh, I think, what is that, like 30 something thousand last time I checked? Right. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, the, the ARC stuff, I feel like, is a perfect example. And there does tend to be this kind of, Carlota Perez from Cornell has written about this, where you kind of have these technological revolutions. And over history, there are all these periods where, Usually in one sector, there's kind of 
the new thing, whatever it is. Like today it's technology, but there's some innovation. And then there's an explosion kind of within that sector. And there are companies that make a ton of money. And then that brings in people that are chasing those returns. And then there's a kind of a boom and new companies formed to capture this excitement and kind of also get in on that new technology. And then the financers come in because they see an opportunity to make money by just, you know, encouraging these new companies to form, underwriting their shares, et cetera, and they see fees <laughs> to be made. And so you get quickly this kind of decoupling, as she calls it, between the investment capital and the productive capital of the actual company and companies in this explosive new sector or whatever, and the people financing it. And so you have this decoupling between kind of reality and stock prices. And then usually after a crash, which she calls the turning point, those kind of two divergent lines are brought back to reality and the stock prices return to what they kind of should be at based on the underlying company's fundamentals. And then usually it's in that period where you kind of tend to see a diffusion of whatever that innovation, which was siloed in one sector was into the broader economy. And so when we wrote about it, we wrote about it through the, and I say we, I mean, O'Shaughnessy asset management, we wrote about it through the lens of kind of value versus growth, because in that first phase before the turning point, that's obviously when growth outperforms and kills it. And in the second phase, when that kind of innovation gets diffused across the broader economy into other sectors, that's when value tends to outperform. And so the way I think about it is Mark Andreessen famously said, software is eating the world. And people say that every company is going to be a software company. And you see that in some stocks that are traditionally boring. I don't know how its stock price is done, but the example that always comes to mind for me is Kroger, which is just boring supermarket, but they had like an interesting deal with Avocado a few years ago, which is kind of one of those like robotic, everything is in a warehouse and machines gather all the orders and it's like all robotics driven. And they have another investment, I think, in one of those little like drone delivery cars that can deliver groceries. And I doubt those are being implemented yet, but it's just an interesting example of how some like kind of traditionally boring sectors are adopting the innovations in the technology sector. And I think that COVID actually accelerated a lot of that because for especially retail, all these stores that were suddenly forced to close during lockdowns, basically their only option was to adopt and innovate in e-commerce because they couldn't have retail actual brick and mortar presence because they were forced to close due to government regulations. And so you saw a lot of these companies kind of become big e-commerce players relative to what they were pre-pandemic because they were forced to kind of adopt this online presence. Target was a great example that we wrote about in one of our market commentaries. Their e-commerce kind of exploded and the stock price was booming alongside that. But again, another kind of boring sector. And we've talked a lot today about the role of government in producing these speculative periods and you can draw parallels to that in COVID in which there was major stimulus from both Congress and the Federal Reserve, but also the periods post or leading up to during and post wars in 19th and 18th century in Britain. 
What is your thought process around the role of government in financial markets? And generally, there's another side of this in which there's a crowd that believes that the government should have zero or at least almost zero role in financial market intervention. What is the general thinking around the government's role in financial markets and whether that has historically been a good or bad thing? So, I mean, I guess there's like the answer somewhere in between. There's never kind of you can categorically say it's a good thing or it's a bad thing. It's definitely somewhere in the middle because, I mean, even using the railway example again, that was, I guess, overall net positive because it built our national railway infrastructure. But within that, you had things like the credit mobile scandal where the government is basically like the first Enron, where it's just kind of just sketchy shell company that while working on the transcontinental railroad, I think it was Union Pacific, but I could be wrong. They were passing on all their construction to this company that was overcharging by like 30%. And a lot of members of Congress were in on it and making a killing. And so just like, I mean, at the end of the day, it's all humans involved in this stuff. And so just because you work in the government doesn't mean that you're going to be kind of always clean and not going to fall victim to the same kind of perils that the average speculator and investor does. South Sea Company, another perfect example where the government got involved and then it turned out to be kind of very fraudulent because there were a lot of members of parliament that were also on the board of directors of the South Sea Company. And so you can imagine that incentives were always aligned and the people acting in parliament were not acting at the kind of best interest of their constituents, but rather what would be best for the share price of the South Sea Company. So I think that the government has some role in markets, but obviously too much of a presence can kind of stifle innovation and too much regulation can hurt markets. But I think there definitely needs to be some level of regulation because otherwise frauds would be able to persist with kind of no threat from anyone stepping in. And so I don't know. I mean, they don't have a great track record, but they also need to be need to be around, I feel like, to protect more on the downside, but kind of limiting how much they are actually getting involved. It's a long-winded way of kind of not answering your question. <laughs> yeah. Well, the other question is basically the relationship of debt and inflation. And you wrote about this, something related to the bubble triangle, but you know, government is a big piece of that, right? Because they can control the currency, they control the national debt. And the amount of liquidity that's in the system, it generally can lead to fervor. But, and maybe just, and we're coming up on time, but go through the bubble triangle. And, and then lastly, we've talked about bubbles the entire time. Maybe let's talk about, and with some positives and, and thought process on the current market environment and where we're going from here. Yeah. So the bubble triangle is part of a book by two phenomenal financial historians at Queen's University, Belfast, Northern Ireland, John Turner and William Quinn. They wrote an amazing book called Boom and Bust, which I would encourage everyone to buy. These are the guys that wrote about the brewery bubble and the bicycle mania. And what they did was they tried to think of a framework for kind of explaining how and why bubbles form. And they leveraged the fire triangle, which brought me back to kind of like... I feel like second grade when you kind of learn that kind of stuff. But the three sides of the fire triangle are heat, fuel, and oxygen, 
And then you also need the initial spark to kind of ignite the fire. So they took that kind of framework and applied it to finance where you have, instead of heat, you have speculation, which that's kind of that side of the triangle. And that's self-explanatory. It's people speculating because they think that at the prices will rise and the oxygen, which kind of enables the fire and sustains it is marketability. And by that, they mean not traditional kind of marketing, but how easy it is to buy or sell an asset and during a bubble, more importantly, buy. And so today, arguably, in terms of a marketability standpoint, it's never been easier. There are fractional shares and there's commission-free trading. You can trade from your iPhone or smartphone in like just three, four clicks. And so from a marketability standpoint, it's never been easier. If you want to trade, you can you can trade. <laughs> so that's the oxygen side. And then you also have money and credit, as you mentioned, which is the fuel that kind of really just adds and can turn a small fire into a massive inferno. And so those kind of three sides, speculation, um, marketability, and money and credit are all what keep the fire going. And if you remove any of those sides, just like with the fire triangle, if you remove oxygen, a fire dies, et cetera. But to ignite the fire initially, over history, the kind of initial spark tends to be something stemming from either politics, aka government or technology. So it's either kind of a technological innovation or it's the government stepping in like the railway mania where they're giving an incentive for people to build railway infrastructure, start railway companies and speculate in railway stocks. And so that triangle, I feel like is a really good way to think about bubbles. Again, I would highly encourage everyone to get that book. It's a fascinating and easy read, but I think that holds true because I mean, today you see the same things playing out and it'll be interesting to see what side of that triangle falls away and kind of ends the bubble. But I think it's a good framework for thinking about kind of how bubbles form. And we've already seen a lot of these names that were, you know, the darlings of COVID. And then even post-COVID, we had names like GameStop and AMC. And we haven't even talked about this <laughs> today, but that's a really good way to think about it. And I think the just general theme is it's difficult not to get caught up in the fervor. And especially when you, it's you're being pumped through, whether it's, headlines on TV or news cycles or Twitter or whatever, everyone talking about the same few stocks and everyone else making money. And you're sitting back in a diversified portfolio and saying, well, maybe I'll shift a little bit towards that, then a little bit more, then a little bit more. Yeah. And all of a sudden you go back to cash because you've lost 10% or 20% and you never really yeah. had any conviction to begin with. Then you're like, oh my God, I'm a crypto bro. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's like... I would have never considered this, but all of a sudden everybody else is talking about it. So maybe I'll take yeah. a look and then maybe I'll make an investment and I've made a little bit of money. So maybe a, a bigger investment and then all of a sudden yeah. the, the rug gets pulled out. But I think the just general theme here is that, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but humans are humans and they're not going to change. And so we're going to see these types of cycles. We're currently, they're always going to be persistent. Regimes will change. So innovation will turn to deep value. And devalue at one point in the future may become hot again, as it was in the 2000s. And uh, and just generally speaking, a diversified portfolio will help you at least uh, not get caught up in this in the frenzy when that frenzy occurs, because 
you always will see those constant news cycles to try to push you towards making those those minor and minor bets that become bigger bets that basically blow up a portfolio ultimately. So that's a summary and maybe I've missed something. No, I think that's beautifully put. And for people that kind of question what the actual applicability and value of studying history is, I think it's exactly as you laid out. It it kind of just gives you more context for when everything is trying to push you into buying some speculative asset and your kind of human nature is just saying, buy it, buy it, buy it. It's like the devil on your shoulder. (laughs) I think once you read enough about financial history and you kind of see all these crazy bubbles, it just, I don't know, it kind of gives you more perspective and makes you step back and think, is this going to be one of those? Is this like a bicycle mania, (laughs) you know? And you kind of just, it makes it easier to not get swept up in the next hot thing just because you've read about so many crazy examples. Sometimes it's literally the same example. One of my favorite things recently that I found is that there's a startup idea that has existed since the 1820s and it keeps coming up every couple of years. And it's, we call it like umbrella stations that where people can pick up an umbrella like at one area of a city and then drop it off at the other and then like pay a fee for that service. But it's just like renting the umbrella that idea like first showed up in the bubble of the 1820s in Britain, the London Umbrella Company. And since then, it's like been on Shark Tank. <laughs> and then New York just announced that they're doing this new like similar, but just like they call it like the city bike equivalent where it's going to be all these umbrella stations. And it's like this startup idea just will not die. <laughs> I don't understand it. And it's just so fascinating to me because I doubt that the founders of these companies know this like niche part of financial history, but it's like people thinking that they've got this novel revolutionary idea and it's far from it. People have been doing this since the 1800s. It's just crazy to me. (laughs) Well, listen, Jamie, this is great. And thank you so much for your time. We hope to have you back. And just for any listeners, please share and rate us and comment and hopefully give us five stars. But appreciate the time today. And Jamie, as always, thanks. Thank you, Jamie. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.